My name is Ida. I'm a compulsive world reader. Uh, I have been an abstaining member of World Readers Anonymous for 44 years. I am a 100-pounder who has been passing for normal for 43 years. And uh, I can't believe you guys are back in this building. <laughs> I was telling Michael, my pitch just might be one long memory lane thing of things that have happened to me in this building. Now, about the only good thing that ever happened to me in this building happened to be this meeting. And I, I think I've spoken here once before, and it hasn't been somewhere between eight and ten years ago, probably closer to ten. But I will never forget the first time I walked into this meeting. Uh, somebody had asked me to lead a, um, a weekday morning meeting. So when I came in, there were two young women, well, um, younger than I was, and I was in my 30s at the time. So, you know, they were like in their 20s. And they were setting up chairs. And so I walked up and I said, hi, I'm Ida. I'm going to be leading the meeting. And they turned around, looked at me, gave me the most withering looks I have ever been presented with, and said, no, you're not. And I said, well, so-and-so asked me, and they said, she had no right. <laughs> and then they turned their backs on me and continued to put up chairs. So I went shopping. I mean, I'm not going to stay where I'm not wanted, you know. So I don't, I don't know where I went, but I went out and spent money. And, uh, and that was my first experience in this building. I think the next time I was doing the... Um, the uh, promises meeting, you know, the holiday promises meeting, and we were all up here, and for some reason we thought it would be a good idea to give everybody a candle. Yeah. And so we were all, you know, holding candles, whereupon I spilled wax all over my brain. <laughs> and then I actually, I think I only spoke here at night once, and uh, I was up here speaking, and a guy came in off the street, loaded beyond belief, sat in the front row, and decided to start talking. <laughs> And those were the good meetings before, before I can't, I don't have time to tell you about the worst meeting I ever attended here, but I kept coming back, didn't I, you know, and here I am. You know. So, you know, as I said, I've been standing for 44 years, and uh, I still find that pretty remarkable, because I remember when... Um, Gene Smith died. She had like 26, 27, and that was the longest abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous. But then, you know, OA hadn't been around that long. You know? And, uh, uh, Lord. So anyhow, I, uh, my sponsor likes to say she's been perfectly imperfect, and I like to say, well, mine's been good enough. Because I'm telling you, uh, um, Trying to be perfect got me to 240 pounds. And so I have never claimed perfection. I have never claimed uh, freedom from the obsession. I've never claimed any of that. All I know is that what I've been doing has been good enough for me to be able to pass the normal and to have been uh, su successfully married and uh, have and it enabled me to retire from my profession with respect, self-respect and, re and the respect of my peers. So here I am. And all that was made possible because in 1975 I hit rock bottom. It was April 16th. 
it was a Wednesday <laughs> and um, someone was going to come visit me who had not seen me in about three years and during the time that she had seen me I was in a temporary recovery I had gotten down to 150 pounds uh, on a crash diet and uh, I didn't look too bad you know I mean I'm short but I um, tend to look thinner than I um, actually am which is ridiculous on my way now there's no way I could look thinner than I actually am it's just ridiculous but that then it was you know 150 pounds I was, I was really happy at 150 pounds um, and I was doing this diet and um, she lived in Maryland and I got on the Greyhound bus to go to Maryland oh god how to be young and foolish and uh, by the time I hit the Arizona border I was bendy and uh, I gained some weight there, and, and but not bad, not bad. I fought it. I would go, even staying in her house, I was there for six weeks, I would go on periodic diets. But when I came back, my periods have been able to sustain that diet got shorter and shorter. You all know the story. And it took me three years, but I gained 75 pounds back. And... Um, she wanted to come visit me and I just couldn't do it. I felt like I had simply mutilated myself with food, which I had. And I could not open the door and let her see what I had done to myself. So instead, I called her and told her that I wouldn't be able to visit her. And then I hung up from that phone call and I called the operator to ask for the phone number of Obedee's Anonymous. I had never heard the words out loud before. I had read about it in Dear Abby. Mm-hmm. And as I guess several of us have. And, uh, uh, but I filed it away. It took me a year and a half more of suffering before I was ready to make that phone call. She gave me the phone number for the World Service Office, which was in Los Angeles at the time. And, but this was 1975. No answering machines. It was after hours and I called and nobody answered. Uh, but my phone call was answered. The next day, April 17th, I got up and I ate a regular breakfast, not a binge. Even though I hadn't gotten that phone call answered. I got to eat a regular breakfast. And I brought a lunch to school. That was a regular lunch, not a binge. And it was a well-known lunch from a well-known uh, food program. And uh, there was a teacher there, and she sat down next to me, and she saw it, and she recognized the lunch because she had been doing it herself. And she asked me about it, and I said that I was going to lose weight. And uh, I need to tell you, this woman was a kindergarten teacher, and she had no business being in the cafeteria because kinder- kindergarten teachers were never seen in the cafeteria. They lived on a different planet from the rest of the school. But she was there that day. And we were not friends, but she sat next to me. Or I sat next to her. I don't know how that happened. And she got up and left, came back a couple of minutes later, sat down next to me and said, why don't you try to lose anonymous? And I looked at her and I told her that I had called the night before. So I was 12 steps on my first day of abstinence. And that phone call was answered. 
The next day she brought me a list of meetings in the Los Angeles area because that's where she lived. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm never going to a meeting in Los Angeles. I live in Alhambra. I'm not going to it. Well, now I live in San Pedro, which is further away than Alhambra. And here I am. Um, and she also brought me food plans that were going on at the time, and I didn't do the food plans. And I didn't come to a meeting in Los Angeles till about 10 months later when I got asked to lead a Hollywood and Highland meeting. I'm going to name drop. Doris was there. And Whitaker was there. Natalie was there. And uh, the woman, Terry, was her name. Terry was the lady from 12th Century. And some of you may have known her. She was Natalie's roommate for a while. Anyhow. I mean, I was in this room with all these high-powered women. I had ten months. I'm lucky I came out with my head, but it was wonderful. <laughs> and then um, Doris asked me to speak at Gardner Street. And that was the first L.A. meeting that I ever spoke at, was Monday Night Gardner. I told you this was going to be memory lane. Jesus. So, uh, so I started abstaining from my first phone call. I didn't attend my first meeting until that Sunday. But I count my abstinence from that first day of abstinence, April, 20, 8, April 17, 1975. Because from that phone call, the abstinence from that phone call, I had surrendered. I had given up. <coughs> and interestingly <coughs> enough, I kept coming. I went to that first meeting. Well, first of all, because she, the, the woman who 12 sent me was going to be in school on Monday, and I wasn't going to show up not having been to a meeting. I mean, that would have just been, you know, bad. So I went to the meeting, and, um, and I knew from the very beginning that I was going to lose all my weight. There was no doubt in my mind. But I also knew that if I didn't change the way I was going to live my life, it was not going to make any difference. So, the first speaker I heard was this young woman who really, I could not relate to. She scared me to death because she talked about having sex at the Renaissance Fair. And I just went, what am I doing? And I went home and I abstained anyhow. Didn't sleep for three days, but I abstained. <laughs> and um, the next speaker I heard was a middle-aged woman who was being excommunicated from her church for living with her boyfriend. And since this is going to be recorded, I am not going to quote what she said. Um, but it had... It was comparing her boyfriend to an ice cream cone and which one was she going to do instead. You know, that sort of thing. I cleaned that up from what she said. And I'm going, oh my God. And I was a, you know, very conservative, prim and proper elementary school teacher. And to hear this, I couldn't believe it. Uh, five percent of the program, I got asked to leave my first meeting. It was uh, my home meeting, with, well, which was my only meeting, the Sunday night Alhambra. And... Uh, and I asked the guy, I said, you know, I've only been to five meetings. He said, oh, I don't think that matters. <laughs> so I led this meeting. I only came out owing one amends. And, but here's the thing. The, 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 speaker, the speaker 
was a man from AA. During that period of time, we used to have AA speakers because we were fairly short on speakers, which is certainly not true now. But at that time, we were. And this man talked about wanting to commit suicide. And I've had a death wish my entire life. And so he, he said he was standing at the window on the 11th floor of this building and he was going to jump. There was a parking lot below, he was going to jump. And the only reason, he said, he didn't do it because there was nobody there to see him do it. And I went, oh my God, this man is telling my story. People, you never know when you're going to hear your story and where it's going to come from. And here was this um, long-time sober alcoholic telling my story. Yeah, I didn't do anything unless it was going to be seen. So, um, five months in, I got a sponsor, and I did what I was told. At that time, we only had the big book, and uh, I uh, did what she said. Uh, I wrote my inventory by the big book and uh, gave away gave it away it, my fifth step was not the greatest experience on the planet that you know my sponsor was mean she said some really awful things to me when I was giving away my inventory things that were really hurtful and I sat there and I listened to her and I didn't know any better you know at the time and 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 her dog kept running in and jacking off on her leg in the middle <laughs> This was my spiritual experience, you know, and I'm just like, oh my God. And I stayed with her for a year. I stayed with her for a year. She taught me a lot of stuff. Um, when I burned my inventory, she said to me, uh, there go all of your reasons for eating, now all you have are excuses. And... And then I started thinking about that just recently, and I thought, yeah, if my, fourth, if my original fourth step had taken care of everything, all of my reasons would have been gone. But they weren't all gone. <laughs> they weren't. It took more, you know, it took more work to get more, to turn those reasons into excuses, you know. Uh, but she was very, very blunt, and so I've been told that I am too. But I have. I hope I'm nicer than she was. <laughs> well, I think I've become nicer. Um, she also said once I got caught in a situation where I owed somebody an amends, I said, "But you know, I was just, I was just using it, you know, for my growth." And she said, "You can't use anybody for your growth, not even with their permission." And that was that's come up recently because I've been really really pissed at Bill Wilson lately the way he treated Lois and uh, and I tried to make some oh I don't I wasn't even going to talk about this crap uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Bill Wilson I think if you stay around for around long enough you're going to have love-hate relationships with all kinds of odd people and Bill Wilson is my love-hate relationship at the moment I'm grateful for what, you know, for what he did in establishing the program in five minutes. Jesus. I haven't even gotten up to my marriage. <laughs> um, I really do have to skip to that because that is really the heart and soul of what I'm... Oh. In 19... Uh, 
1977, I walked into my school cafeteria. My, boy, a lot happened to me in that school cafeteria. Twelve-stepped in that school cafeteria. Met my future husband in that school cafeteria. Um, met this man, and uh, his name was John. And some of you in this room knew him uh, because he was always with me. And uh, thanks to uh, Overeaters Anonymous, by that time, after a couple of years in program, I was open to having a relationship. And I was opening, open to taking a chance. And um, uh, two, two years later, after we first met, we started dating. Uh, three weeks after his first date, after our first date, I took him to his first OA meeting because I wanted to see what I wanted him to see what he was getting into. And later on in our marriage, he said to me once, he said he was never afraid to marry a compulsive reader. He said because he knew he would always be well fed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, you know, I. I really, really had to work my program with my husband, and, and if he had had a program, he was quite normal in most respects. Uh, he would have had to have worked his with, on me, because, uh, you know, I, uh, I was very committed to Overeaters Anonymous. I was up to my eyeballs in service at the intergroup and meeting level. I spent 30, I spent 30 years doing Region 2 work on a regular basis. And I spent 35 years doing intergroup work, besides sponsoring and besides speaking and so forth. And John backed me up all the time. He was, he was 100% behind me all the time. Well, of course, he did hear me say lots of times that our marriage depended on my working my program. <laughs> so he knew it was in his best interest too, you know, I'm sure. But at the same time, he adored people in Obedience Anonymous. He admired us tremendously. He couldn't believe how openly we talked. And he was a very affectionate man who grew up in a very, uh, with very distant parents and he loved to hug. And my husband was not a shy hugger. He was a full-body hugger. But it was John, you know, it's not somebody off the street for pieces. And people, people would go, my God, that man can hug. And i go, yes. <laughs> so we had an absolutely um, amazing marriage. My, the people who knew us would say, you know, Edie, he really is a keeper. And I said, oh, yes, he really is a keeper. And then um, in 2012, he was diagnosed with dementia. He had uh, strokes. He had vascular dementia. And at the same time, he was being treated for recurring prostate cancer. And uh, for the next four years, I was his primary caregiver. And that meant a, a tremendous change in my program. Uh, for the last two, three years, you know, uh, of his, uh, his illness, I couldn't go to meetings. I didn't go to meetings for at least two years, possibly three. Because when I would leave him, uh, he would become um, agitated. So my program had to take a, had to change. You know, Dr. Bob says, you know, you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to drink. Well, that's fine if you can keep doing it. But when you, uh, but I couldn't do it anymore. So I depended on phone meetings. I listened to podcasts. I, uh, and I kept my sponsoring going, and my sponsees uh, stayed with me. Uh, I kept the phone calls going, and I worked with my sponsor very hard. And um, it, you know, it got to the point where he didn't know who I was, he didn't know where I'd come from, he didn't know that we were married, but he knew he wanted me around. 
And I know, I know that he loved me to the day he, he went unconscious. Even though he didn't know my name. And uh, it was a... And during that time, my program got better without meetings. You know, when AA was established, meetings were optional. <laughs> I love it. Church going was not, but meetings were. <laughs> no, church going was strongly recommended. That was my time, wasn't it? Oh, shit. Well, anyhow, I just wanted to say that during that time with my husband, I turned to meditation. And I started doing secular meditation, and for the past six years, I've had a daily meditation practice and that is what took over my program that became the driving force behind my program was my daily meditation and uh, my food stayed absolutely rock solid during that whole time there was no choice there was no thought to make it any different and that is the blessing of the program I know I'm going to have time for questions so I will stop there thank you Uh, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing of this meeting. That has always impressed me about this meeting. You guys come here with no hope of hearing your own voice. And I just... <laughs> you don't know how great that is. Okay, just a second. Um, if you need to share, please do so with any um, one of us after the meeting. If you um, also please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, we are being recorded. Uh, please remember, if you have a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay. And we will have a five-minute warning when it's time to stop the uh, questions. Okay. Questions. You had your hand up. Yes. Um, thank you so much for your sharing. You're welcome. Um, so, you're going to have to stand up for me. Oh, I feel like <laughs> I'll be warm with you. I'm just wondering if you have any daily practices and if they, how they've changed over the years. Well, the meditation is a daily practice. I do. And it started over, it started six years ago. And I had a successfully avoided meditation the previous 38 years in the program. <laughs> I just wasn't going to do it. Um, first of all, because I don't, I don't believe in God, so if there wasn't, and the description of uh, meditation in the OE literature is, you know, it's God-centered. And since I didn't have a God to meditate on, uh, what was I going to do about that? And so what happened with that was I went to a pain management class given through my health insurance and like the second class we were in, it may have been the first class session, they started talking about uh, meditation is, uh, in relationship to pain. Because I was in severe physical pain, uh, and I had been for several years. And, but I went to that class because I thought, well, maybe that class would have something to help me cope with my husband also. And besides that, in, also in 2012, one of my sponsees died. Uh, after a, a short and horrible illness. So 2012 was a terrible year in my life. But, so, I, so they started me uh, meditating. 
and I, I found a, um, a podcast that I liked and, and it was a half hour and so I went from zero to a half hour of meditating a day <laughs> I don't do anything halfway you know I started med- I started staying overnight you know I started talking. everything just overnight and um, it and then I found secular mindfulness with a special emphasis on mindful self-compassion and I've done a lot of work with mindful self-compassion and I am this is why I'm so committed to the OA 12 and 12 second edition is because of its emphasis on compassion and self-compassion and forgiveness uh, I, I learned this stuff and then, then I found it printed in, in the OA literature and so this is, this is the book I use when I sponsor uh, it, it speaks it speaks to me and it gives me what I need today so that's one daily practice another thing I do is I exercise on a daily basis and I've been exercising um, just about every day for decades uh, every once in a while the shit hits the fan and I go not today <laughs> I'm going to go take a bath instead and every once in a while that happens but I am committed um, not just for you know my health reasons, but for my um, for uh, my brain, for my mind. As a matter of fact, I started I started exercising on a daily basis to help me cope with my sister's death thirty some years ago, and uh, didn't work. The only thing that did work was writing inventory, and I. Uh, uh, but then I was stuck with a daily exercise practice <laughs> and so what else do I do on a daily basis well first of all I abstain on a daily basis and I do a lot of food prep and I plan ahead I've been, uh, I've been weighing and measuring and counting calories from the beginning and I still do because that's for me the easier softer way when I put my food on my plate I know how much it is I can eat it all I do not share I do not leave a bite for God you know I don't no 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 and it's it's all mine and I don't have to wonder you know I don't have to think about it Um, what else do I do i Okay, because I abstain on a daily basis, I give service on a daily basis, because that's the biggest service I do. Uh, but I also sponsor. Uh, I, I'm really blessed with my sponsees. They are, it's a different lot, a lot of long-time abstainers. I don't normally get people who come in off the street. But you know, my, spon- my sponsees range from people who are struggling right now to people who have 40 years. And you would think my life would be easier because I have some long-time sponsors, you know. They're not always easy. People with 30 years are not always easy. You know, when uh, my sponsor really earned her keep <laughs> the last few years, you know. Um, anything else I do on the date? Something I, I'm going to be very honest is that I don't do is I don't make phone calls. I just have never been a phone call maker. I spend a tremendous amount of time on the phone but I have never been one to make outreach calls. And people ask me, well, what do you do? And I just kind of sit there. And I said, well, what I do is I just, you know, do it. <laughs> uh, I just don't eat or I, um, and I just, anyhow, that's all in that. I can't think of anything else I do on a daily basis. Yes, sir. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, being an atheist, how do you work the God-centered steps? 
without God. Well, for instance, when I took step three, I can tell you exactly. My sponsor, I, my sponsor and I had just met, and uh, we had. I had never met and seen her before, and uh, she said, uh, "You're going to write your fourth step." She said, "Because the only way you know you've done step three is to do step four. And that was how I took step three. I took that step three by doing four through twelve. Uh, when I uh, when it, well, of course, I totally ignored step eleven. Well, you know, for the first twenty-five years in program, I got on my knees every night, sometimes in the morning too, and I, I and that I wasn't acting as if I believed for a long time. But then it just it just went away, and it took me a while for it for me to be able to admit that it had gone away. And then finally one night I just I was on my knees and I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I got up and that was it. And um, oh, within a year I was doing light a candle and I stood up at the podium and I said the A word out loud <laughs> and put it on 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 a tape. And now I do it. Now I, I, I talk about being an atheist because people use God as an excuse not to abstain. They use God as an excuse not to write their fourth step. You know, not to do this. Well, I'm having trouble with step three, so I can't do step four. Oh, please. Don't tell me that. You know, I'm, I, uh, and then, you know, there is a, finally there's a story in the uh, big book. Uh, a new story in the fourth edition um, written by somebody who doesn't believe in God and uh, doesn't think <laughs> and um, and I was just reading uh, Taste of Lifeline in one of the OA books and there, I just the last story I happened to read and there was about somebody who, who was an atheist too uh, and uh, some years ago uh, Grapevine uh, the AA magazine had a whole issue on Atheists and AA, you know, the big secret. You know, we'd rather admit we went to prison for whatever than to say we are, you know, atheists. I don't care. Call me whatever you want. Now, I do have a higher power. We have all kinds of... <laughs> this weather is a power greater than myself, you know. Uh, I talk about the process of the 12 steps because whatever I turn to, what I was taught, whatever I turn to in times of trouble is my higher power. I can say I believe in God. If I'm eating, I'm lying. Food is my higher power. And so what I turn to when I'm in trouble is the process of the 12 steps. The process of the 12 steps. And it has worked for me. And when I got off my knees, it made no difference in my program whatsoever. None of my sponsees went running into the hills. I, I sponsor uh, some very religious women. I sponsor some women who are not so religious and all kinds of religions and um, it doesn't make any difference because I know I've had a spiritual experience and they know I've had a spiritual experience because I'm not the person I was when I came in in 1975 not close okay question yes ma'am was there ever a time that you should be able to receive the love that your husband kind of provided and so or if not that will be your practice Okay, the first couple years that we were married, I sort of walked on eggshells. 
because you know this was new to me he was my first and probably my last relationship <laughs> yeah. uh, I had done virtually no dating or anything before that well you know that's not true but we don't have time for my sex inventory but uh, <laughs> but in any case he was he was it he was really it and we had a different kind of relationship he was 25 years older than I was he was 95 when he died and uh, uh, but um, it took me a couple of years and the and one day I thought you know what I don't I have one closet that's all I have he has the rest of the house I don't have a whole dresser what is this and I'm, I made a stand and I said John I'm getting these two closets you're moving your stuff into this room and and then I took over more drawers in the dresser and um, and then some one day it just was very clear to me that he wasn't going anywhere he wasn't going anywhere and neither was I and and um, there is a story that I, I tell I have all kinds of stretch marks my, my body under these beautiful clothes is a mess that's five minutes <laughs> I stretch marks hanging skin you know I'm 73 gravity is working against me and the fact that I'm a hundred pounder is working against me so uh, but my husband didn't seem to matter to him that I had all these defects of body <laughs> He just, I think he thought it was amazing he had a woman who was 25 years younger than him myself uh, but he um, he didn't seem to notice so one day I asked him I said John you know you just do you actually see my stretch marks do you see my skin I said because you don't seem to it, you know you don't seem to and he said oh yeah yes I do he said I see you he says but I what I see is I see your battle scars and you've won the war see that's the kind of support I have and um, yeah we'll end with that yes Michael um, so you mentioned something about your meditation and self-compassion and how it mentions that in the just talk a little bit more about that and how that Okay. Uh, when I got into meditation, I started reading books, and there was a book mentioned in one of the books that I was reading, and it was focused on mindful self-compassion. And so I read it, and it was like, oh my God, you know, this is what's missing. I am just so hard on myself after all these years I was still taking a hammer to myself and uh, I got more interested in it and this hit me right at the time when John was really coming you know he was really losing it and I was I was really losing my husband through that whole through the whole process and so I decided to really investigate uh, this and so I, I did a, uh, an intensive um, training a one week intensive training in minds of self-compassion in which I learned a couple things one you can't open a flower with a hammer 
and to being broken. You know that song about broken and beautiful? I swear to God, that should be our theme song. Because we're, we are broken people. We get mended, and where we are mended, we are more beautiful. And uh, the example that they gave at this thing was the Japanese bulls being mended with gold. And, you know, we, we come into this program absolutely broken, and we are mended with gold. And we are more beautiful because we are broken and mended than in, we would have been if we were perfect from the get-go. We are more valuable. We are more valuable to other people because of what we've been through. But I severely lacked forgiveness. And I had, uh, in my meditation, I would have to take it uh, into meditation. And and some of my favorite lines were like, uh, in in compassion, in, in compassion for myself, in order to ease my own heart, may I let go of whatever, person, place, thing, may I let go of, out to ease my own heart, may I let go of. And one of my favorite um, meditations is, may I live with serenity, courage, and wisdom. Condensed, condensed serenity prayer. Serenity, courage, wisdom. And I use it like a mantra, serenity, courage, wisdom. But then it says in step 8 of the OA 12 and 12, second edition, we need to forgive ourselves for what we regret doing or not doing and for not being all we could have been. Self-forgiveness means letting go of negative feelings such as shame and guilt. The power to extend forgiveness to others comes from self-forgiveness To refuse to forgive is to continue to hurt ourselves. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I hear it, but I'm going to finish. That's not it. That's it. (laughs) No, I'm going to finish this paragraph anyhow. Um, To refuse to forgive is to continue to hurt ourselves. Forgiveness is not forgetting or pretending something didn't happen. We acknowledge that we were harmed that we need to let go of the pain in order to move forward with our recovery. Forgiveness is not excusing. A wrong was in fact committed. Forgiveness is not giving permission for the hurtful behavior to continue or saying the behavior in the past was okay. Nor is forgiveness necessarily reconciliation. That is a separate decision. We need to forgive ourselves for what we regret doing or not doing and for not being all we could have been. And that has been the focus of, of my meditation. And, and I can only forgive you if I forgive myself. And it was such a thrill to, to, to see just about everything that I have learned in meditation to be in this book. Yeah. So I can talk about my meditation practice and I don't have to quote outside literature, which I wouldn't do. But if you want to know what I read, ask me afterwards. <laughs> but anyhow, my time is up. Thank you very much.